I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Our next guest and I share something that I know about, but he does not, at least not yet. A few years ago, when our springtime crop of snap peas began to disappear mysteriously, my wife and I tried in vain to discover if some wild culprit had been invading our garden. I was kind of feeling all Mr. McGregory, you know, starting to hate what I suspected was a Peter Rabbit. Eventually, I decided it was time to set a trap, and now the trap that I used was designed to catch the criminal alive, and it worked. I came home one afternoon, and my young boy came running out excitedly, almost breathless, calling to me, Dad, Dad, you caught a beaver. And I thought that was not possible, given that the closest beavers live two miles away from where I do and uh, far from the arid foothills of suburban Provo, Utah. Upon inspection, I realized that another animal, not a beaver, had been stealing our pea plants. I actually had to use a field guide to verify what it was. It turned out uh, I knew it was not a skunk, not a squirrel, not a rat, not a raccoon, but a marmot was captured in the trap. I am the only person that I know of in this area who has ever had a marmot in the garden. Who knew that they set foot in a suburban neighborhood like mine? I set it free a few miles away where marmots are known to dwell and forage, to live and die, to do their thing, you know, to eat or get eaten. And I was very careful to drop it off on the far side of the river because I was certain it would not trespass the river. I just didn't want it coming back to my yard. I like my peas. Well, our next guest is a marmot expert, but it so happens that as a marmot expert... He knows a whole lot more than just marmots. That's the way with life scientists. They have depth and breadth. And this fellow has spent time studying the nature of fear, and he can handle the topic of fear in ways that that bridge from animals to our own uh, human fear. He is, in fact, the author of The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. Daniel Blumstein is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He's also board president and research scientist at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory. It's a pleasure to have him with us to explore the topic of fear and to learn a little bit what we might glean about behaviors and patterns seen in animals relative to fear. Daniel Blumstein, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thanks, Marcus. Great story about the Marmot in your backyard. I, I I wish I had marmots living in my backyard. They don't yeah. live in Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that you would envy me for having them come right up to the doorstep. You know, um, I thought about how fearful the animal was when I saw it in the trap, and I thought, well, I don't know what to do exactly. But I took a, an old blanket and covered it up. I thought maybe in the dark it would be a little bit more calm, because I had to transport this off to some other location. And uh, do you think I did the right thing? Did, did, uh, I mean, the blanket thing, is that, was that wise? Sort of making it dark, making it feel like it's in its burrow. It's interesting. We study marmots, um, yellow-bellied marmots, throughout their lives. This is our 60th year of following the fate of individuals. And um, most of them are pretty mellow in the traps. Every once in a while, you get one that's a little stressed out. And uh, what's fascinating is we, we know they're stressed out because... We collect everything we can with them. We trap them and mark them and collect a little blood and collect feces if they give it to us. All of our animals agree to participate in everything we do. And we can look at their stress hormones. And for those animals that um, uh, are that alarm call when they're in the trap and are afraid, um, we notice that their stress hormone levels go up the next day if we were to trap them again. And for all the other animals we trap, most of them, um, their stress hormone levels don't change at all. So trapping for many of these individuals is, is not, not a big thing. But that individual variation in fearfulness um, is something that we expect. And we see it in humans. We see it in non-humans across the animal kingdom. I don't pretend to have had anything like the experience you've had. And so I'm, I'm a total marmot novice, really. <laughs> um, aside from the fact that my sister-in-law always called my kids marmots, <laughs> which is <laughs> that's a true thing. Um, when I set it free... And I lifted the blanket and opened the door. It just kind of cowered for a while, didn't seem to, but then it shot off like a bullet and, and just took off into the, into the distance so fast. And uh, we could talk stress hormones, we could talk marmots a lot, but I kind of want to talk about your own human stress hom- hormones. You've got some stories to tell about your own fear 
And I want to know about the times when you've really been deeply, deeply afraid of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, uh, the, the same um, neurochemical systems that um, uh, influence marmot behavior influence our behavior. Um, in fact, we are the descendants of a long line of successful ancestors across the animal kingdom who got risk assessment and stress right. And in this book, really, I'm sort of, you know, harping and riffing on this idea that we can learn a lot about ourselves and about our own fear by um, studying the diversity of animals on, on, on the planet, not just, not just humans. And one, really, I opened the book with a, a story about when I was bicycling in, in Kenya, in East Africa, and uh, bicycling alone and on a deserted um, road, and it was hot, and I was bicycling up a sort of uh, a long hill, and you know some guys were on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, and I sort of you know say jambo hello to them, and uh, as I passed them, out of the corner of my eye, I sort of caught um, the the that they were throwing a large rock um, at at me, and my bike was incredibly loaded down, and it was really stable. And it hit me on my shoulder, and I started bicycling as fast as I could. And I had this incredible adrenaline rush, the same neurochemicals that, you know, marmots might have if they get really scared from a predator. Um, these are life-affirming and life-securing chemicals. These processes that have evolved over millions of years have kept my ancestors and your ancestors safe. And I sort of felt that in this very visceral way. So... Um, stress hormones and adrenaline completely change how we mobilize energy and it sort of shunts all of our energy to our muscles. So I had incredible power that allowed me to bicycle quickly up this hill and get away from these guys. Um, you know, a couple miles later on, I, I saw a truck coming and I flagged it down and I was shaking. I was, you know, shaking with fear um, because I thought these guys were still coming after me. Um, and that sort of was a a very eye-opening experience, literally. Um, when you get a, if you've you know ever been in a near miss in a car or something like that, and you hit the brakes and almost hit something, you know suddenly you can breathe clearly and your eyes open up. And that was those were some of the feelings I was having at, at this time. So we could point to stress hormones that resulted in those kinds of uh, experiences, and we could say, well, there's the cause. But seeing some boys with rocks isn't necessarily sufficient to make stress hormones flow, is it? No, um, but you know these are things that have uh, kept our ancestors safe. Um, getting stressed out and changing how you mobilize energy. So uh, all organisms have a have a have a challenge of of allocating energy and acquiring energy. Energy is a limited thing. And if you're in a safe place, you know you should be allocating energy to growth and reproduction because at the end of the uh, day, leaving descendants is the name of the game in evolution. Um, if you're in a place that is um, challenging to your um, ability to grow or reproduce, then maybe uh, energy should be allocated into defenses. And we see across the animal kingdom all sorts of interesting defenses, whether they're spines or horns or antlers that may be used to defend against others, um, other species, or other sorts of inducible defenses. I talk about um, uh, acacia plants in East Africa in the book. And acacias are really interesting because acacias are really yummy and they're eaten by um, giraffes and elephants and things like that. And if it's, it's expensive to make thorns and acacias that are not grazed don't make thorns. But if they're grazed, they make thorns. But they only make thorns up to the point where they're being grazed. So a colleague in front of mine noticed that in, in, in Nairobi, um, trucks and buses um, were hitting in the acacias up to a certain level. And below that level, um, there were thorns on these acacia trees. And above that level, there weren't thorns. So we see all sorts of what might be called inducible defenses, um, but apparently are adaptive responses that organisms um, engage in to protect themselves. Um, a glucocorticoid response, a stress hormone response, an adrenaline rush. These are some of those examples of those uh, sorts of inducible responses that, that have, you know, keep animals and, and plants alive. I'm very interested in this idea of the costliness of fear when it comes to the ex expenditure of, of energy. Uh, you talk about birds and how 
uh, it's expensive to get scared and fly away from something. It, it, it burns up calories. Is that the idea? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'm a behavioral ecologist and, 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 and one sort of theme we use to think about life is that you can sort of view life as a series of options or a series, there could be a series of patches out there. And maybe in one patch there's food and in another patch there's food and there's predators. And, you know, given a choice of going to the patch with food only or food and predators, where would you go? Well, most animals and people would go to the safe place and, and get the resources without having to face the risk. Um, but responding to predators or particularly responding to false alarms, it can be very costly. Overreacting to fear can be you know, more costly than appropriate react, appropriately reacting to fear. So there's all sorts of um, examples of animals modifying their behavior based on their needs or taking more risks. If you're hungry, you know, you're going to take a greater risk. I like to, in, in, in large classes I teach, I ask students to raise their hand and uh, I say, okay, so let's just think of, you know, the worst war zone in the world right now. You know, if I pay you uh, $10, will, will you go there um, to have lunch? And no one raises their hand. Who would go if I pay you a hundred? Who would go if I pay you a thousand? Who would go if I pay you ten thousand? And some people start raising their hands. Who would I go if I pay you a hundred thousand? There's a pause. How about a million? For a million dollars, you could, you know, hire security and make it safe. And as we go higher and higher, more people begin to raise their hands. Everyone has their price. All animals have their price as well. So we can be primed to take risks if there are going to be suitable rewards associated with that. And that's sort of a way of thinking about the decisions that organisms are making with respect to risk assessment. Importantly, different individuals might start at different levels of security or hunger or whatever, so would be willing to take different risks. And this is a really powerful way to think about the role of context in, in explaining the diversity of behavior we see. As a behavioral ecologist, I'm interested in explaining the diversity of behavior we see, and in some cases, using that to gain insights on, on why we behave the way we behave. I'm still very fixated on the idea that we pay a price for our fear, or can pay a price for our fear, particularly if it's a miscalibration of fear, right? And so I'm wondering uh, if you'd comment, I don't know how this bridges to marmots or birds or, or whatever, uh, but the idea that it's kind of maladaptive to not take some risks. And there are people who are just uh, beset by anxiety and fear and it's chronic and it goes on and on and the stress levels are high. And, I, and I'm just guessing, it, you know, they have shorter lives. Uh, you know, can you talk about that side of things? Not the, not the idea that people are, are taking great risks, but that people won't take risks and, and even not taking risks can be, uh, you know, there's a cost. Well, the easiest way to think about not taking risks is, you know, marmots live in burrows most of the time and they come out to eat. So if you know there's something dangerous outside and you never leave your burrow, you're going to starve to death. So the other sort of theme from behavioral ecology is that life is a series of decisions, but these decisions have trade-offs. So you can be perfectly safe, but you're missing out on being able to eat and you will ultimately starve to death. Um, humans beset with chronic anxiety um, you know, have real challenges because uh, they're not taking the risks that would allow them to go out and experience things. And they're, um, in, 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 in some cases, are missing out on, on many things. Um, colleague of mine uh, is a psychiatrist and one of the founders of this field called evolutionary medicine, where we try to gain insights into health and wellness um, by thinking about the function of various behavioral or physical or physiological responses um, and thinking about, you know, are, 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 are things we might call disease states, are, can these be adaptive in any way? And he used to have an anxiety clinic. And in his anxiety clinic, he was dealing with people that were, you know, chronically stressed out and they were anxious about being anxious. And he would sit down with them and, you know, spend 55 minutes or whatever, you know, time shrinks, spend with her patients. And it would, would basically say, you know, um, there are all these animals in, in the world and all these animals um, are anxious. A anxiety is a good thing. It keeps you safe. And, you know, this is adaptive and this is good and it's okay to be stressed out. But, you know, being anxious about being anxious can be debilitating. And here are examples when animals are trying to make themselves too safe and, you know, they, they, don't, do, they don't do very well. He said about 15% of the people um, who he spoke with 
said, wow, this really helps. And, and, you know, he never saw them again. And, you know, maybe he never saw them again because you know, they thought he was crazy, but maybe they, 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 didn't, they didn't see them again because um, they realized that being anxious about being anxious um, isn't, that, isn't that great. And uh, anxiety itself is, is a good thing. It's good to be anxious and it's good to have anxiety. It's good to have fear. The question, you know, the challenge is, you know, what's too much? And if it's getting in the way of your life, it's probably too much. Can we really transfer these kinds of concepts from a clam that is want to clam up from a shadow overhead? Yeah, I, 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 the theme of my book is we can. And we can because um, the same, um, in, in some cases, the same physiological processes, but the same logic applies that if you clam up too much, um, you're going to miss out on, on feeding. And if evolution is a game between individuals who might uh, vary in certain traits, and that trait could be clamminess in this case, um, uh, that, that those that are able to get more resources and have more offspring are going to win. So I think that's the same thing across the animal kingdom. Um, at least that's how we sort of you know, view this from an evolutionary perspective. And I think the, the same logic applies. Daniel Blumstein, I want to talk with you about snakes and spiders, the fear thereof, and how far back in our human history does that go, and have I inherited it from a great, 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 great grand ancestor way back there? We're going to do that after a short break. So we are with Daniel Blumstein. He's author of Nature, The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. We are visiting with the author of The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. His name is Daniel Blumstein. Uh, Daniel, I was just about to ask you about snakes and spiders. It's, it's very common for people to talk about those two particular life forms when they're talking about being afraid of, well, there's tigers, you know, lions, tigers, bears too. But, you know, I see, I'll be out on a walk someplace and uh, I'll just see a crooked stick. And I flinch. It just seems instinctive. And I, I'm wondering how you feel about snakes and spiders. I feel the same way. I, I, I like snakes and spiders. I, I used to like um, spiders much more until I was bitten by one and my finger almost Ooh. fell off. But aside from that, um, yeah, these are these, these are responses to snakes and spiders, which can be venomous, um, is a pretty hardwired response. Um, there have been studies now, I don't know, who would let their kids participate in these studies, but developmental psych psychologists study the development of, of, of human behavior. And there have been really interesting studies in, in human babies um, sort of showing them snake-like objects and spider-like objects and showing that they you know, respond to these um, really without any prior experience. That's something we would call innate. And uh, a lot of people looked at various primate species, which also non-human primate species, which also respond in what appears to be a pretty innate way to snakes and spiders. And um, I mean, the, the experiments that people do are fascinating because you can sort of draw something that looks like a spider particularly, and uh, they even respond to um, you know these drawings, and then you take all the, you take all those legs and jumble them up. And if you jumble them up, it doesn't really lead to a response. So there's something about um, the shape and potentially behavior and texture of uh, snakes and spiders which really capture our attention. So I want to posit that I am very much like a marmot in that maybe marmots and humans are both afraid of snakes. I don't know if that's true, but let's just, just work with me here for a bit. Uh, if a marmot uh, has some sort of ancient history with uh, snakes and they, they've learned, or maybe it's baked into their DNA, it's a genetic inheritance, that they're going to flinch and be scared and run away from, from snakes. A marmot's going to do this. Um, but then there's the marmot who went into my trap. And maybe a million years ago, there were no traps for marmots to be afraid of. You see where I'm going with this? The idea that uh, I, I'm wondering about learned fear and, and how, how that eventually gets into the DNA. So many, many organisms have what might be called an innate predisposition um, to learn about specific things. Bird song. Birds are programmed to learn at certain times of their life. What their, what their song should be, many birds that, you know, singing birds. Um, and even animals that might initially respond to some sort of object or, or shape or 
potential predator, um, their behavior, their anti-predator behavior gets better with time. So learning is really important. Fish are particularly fascinating this way. So if um, fish detect the chemical of other fish that have their skin broken, they will immediately become extra sensitive to other chemicals and pair those chemicals and learn in one trial that that other chemical is probably associated with a predator. So people put predatory fish, pike, in a tank and take the water from that and then pair that with the, the uh, elixir of basically ground up skin from minnows or something like that. And minnows who smell the ground up skin from minnows and smell the pike or detect chemically the pike immediately learn to respond fearfully to pike. So they're programmed to learn these specific things. Yeah. That went so far over my head. <laughs> <laughs> I can unpack it if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, please the do. The point is that, that both sort of what we might call innate predispositions and learning are vital skills to keep animals alive. And some of the best studies of learning about predators come from fish, where chemically they learn to associate um, smells associated with death with um, smells associated with predators. And they can do it in one single trial. And it's really interesting stuff. Yeah. Marmots, however, um, with respect to snakes, they respond to all sorts of things. But I put out dummy snakes a long time ago in Capitol Reef National Park where they live with snakes. And I, I didn't see any response to the, the snakes. Maybe I could train them to respond to snakes, but they don't seem to be afraid of snakes. A lot of ground squirrels, however, prairie dogs are afraid of snakes and alarm call and do all sorts of things when they see snakes. And this seems to be pretty hardwired, pretty innate, um, that, that babies can do it without experience. But that doesn't mean that um, it doesn't get better with practice. You have bracketed together animal fear from noises, from sounds, with Hollywood horror movies. This is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, it, it, all, it all happened when I was trapping a baby marmot. We studied these marmots. This is our 60th year of following this population of yellow-bellied marmots. We follow them throughout their lives. We live trap them and mark them and, and, and peer at them. And it's a soap opera um, in slow motion, but it's a soap opera. And I was holding a baby marmot one day and it screamed in my hands and I almost dropped it. And I wondered why I was having an emotional response to a little rodent. And I then started studying this in more detail. And what I realized is that, um, that screams sound similar across lots of different species. So a scream is a scream is a scream. When, when, when Darwin's writings came online, I, I looked around and said, well, did Darwin know anything about marmots? Darwin knew nothing about marmots. He never went to places with marmots. Poor Darwin. But he did know about screams. And he said, screams are um, cries from young animals to solicit aid from their parents. This morning, I was trapping some baby marmots. A baby marmot was screaming in the trap, and its mother ran up and stood next to me and looked at me. Um, so, you know, Darwin was right about that, and he was right about many other things as well. But at the end of the day, I started thinking about emotional responses to screams. And then I started thinking about, well, you know, this is pretty deep. I mean, a fox scream sounds like a marmot scream, sounds like a cat scream, sounds like a, you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of analyzing the structure of screams, which are very different than alarm calls. So if you walk your dog down the a path in, in the wild, you know, you might hear birds or, or, or squirrels giving alarm calls. And alarm calls are often very tonal. They're very whistle-like or chirp-like. Um, but screams, screams sound like the, the, the vocal production system's broken. So think about your car stereo. You turn up your car stereo a little and it gets louder and louder and louder, and this is good. Um, then you turn it up a little too far and it starts getting distorted. Screams are sort of distorted vocalizations in some way, and they're the product of a vocal production system, in the case of a mammal, blowing air across your vocal cords, um, kind of being overblown. And when you overblow these sorts of systems, you get what are called predictable um, unpredictabilities in some sense, um, predictable chaotic sounds. Um, you know at some point when you have too much velocity going through and across vocal cords that um, it's going to sound 
predictably unpredictable. You, so you said I mean velocity. I thought you said philosophy, but you said no, velocity. velocity. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Airspeed. Yeah. But um, predictable unpredictability is, is chaotic. It's noisy. It sounds rough. The amplitude goes up and down a lot. It's like your, your car stereo when you turn it up too high. It sounds bad. It sounds distorted. So then I started thinking about soundtracks and music. And I, I live in Los Angeles much of the year. And I started talking to um, you know, musicians and film people. And you know, how, do, how do you think about emotion? And they know how to do emotion, but they're not really thinking about the biological basis of it. So I partnered with uh, some musicians and, and people who study human vocalizations. And we started doing a series of experiments and made a bunch of observations. And it turns out that um, um, movie soundtracks um, particularly scary movie soundtracks, are chock full of these, what we would call non-linearities, the product of an overblown system. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's screams in, in, in films, and then there are real screams in films. So the, the first scream that Janet Leigh did in, in Psycho is a real scream. Um, it's, a, it's a visceral, you know, blood-curdling scream. And it sounds different than the rest of her screams. And, and it contains all of these things that we hear in, you know, marmot screams and animal screams as well. So it's really fascinating. Um, and then we did, we made music. We made what I called marmot inspired music. And we sort of <laughs> played this back to people and asked them what they thought about this. And it turns out that they found that this was more um, arousing um, and it was more negative um, than other sorts of benign ditties that didn't have um, distortion added to um, these little simple you know, compositions that we made. And this is sort of evidence that emotion is conveyed in screams and it can be very negative emotion. Very recently, someone else, a big group of people wrote another paper and they looked at screams and they said, well, there's screams and there's screams and there's screams. And that one part of these screams, these fear screams, do contain all of these sorts of things, but other screams can be more structured and, and used in different ways. But fear has a sound. Hmm. And that's sort of the big in, insight from this work. And this sound um, you know, communicates across species. And it um, explains, I think, why we respond certain ways to certain sounds in film soundtracks and, and musical compositions, etc. Well, we have had a brief survey of a few, uh, just a few species, you know, from marmots to minnows and, and that sort of thing. Um, but now I want to get to the subtitle of your book, Survival Lessons from the Wild. It's one thing to learn stuff about how animals are, can be fearful and how they behave. It's another to translate that into my personal survival. What, what can you tell me? What can you tell anybody about uh, how to survive better in, in terms of the way we either uh, react to fearful stimuli or, or the way we manage our own fear? Well, I think first we have to embrace our fear. Fear keeps us alive and it's kept our ancestors alive and it will keep our descendants alive um, because not being fearful is not good. But overreacting to fear um, can be paralytic and um, can come with great costs. So the challenge is being appropriately fearful. And that's going to vary based on context and, and other sorts of things. Politicians do a really good job of instilling fear to get votes. I think that's a cheap trick. I think we should resist that. And I think these fear decisions we make are very visceral and very rapid decisions to allow us to respond immediately to something. And I think when you listen to what politicians are saying about um, you know, evil people coming over borders to kill us and do things like that. You know, pause, collect some information. Is this really happening? Is this happening a lot? Is it happening to you? How exposed are you to this? And I think most people will realize that maybe the, the, this is overblowing, uh, um, you know, a, a dialogue and it's trying to instill fear in us to collect votes. We're very susceptible to that. You're, you're saying that, a, that a every one. curved stick is not a snake. Every curved stick is not a snake, but if you're in Costa Rica in a rainforest, you should pay attention to curved sticks. If you're <laughs> walking in New York City, maybe not. <laughs> well, here, here's a question for you. Um, the older we get, we experience fear differently. Yeah. I mean, uh, all context is everything and age is part of context. And you know, when you're young and nimble, you can escape things maybe really well. And when you're older, you become more cautious. Um, I used to extreme ski. 
Um, I took up surfing kind of late in my life, and I'm never going to be a big wave surfer. Um, I like small waves. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it's okay to change and embrace those changes and respect those changes because those changes are part of a developmental program that, that keeps us all alive. I had some back problems a number of years ago and I was hobbling to work and I, I used to have to cross a, a, a you know, seven or eight lane street um, to get to work when I was walking to work in Los Angeles. And um, you know, for a period of time, I, I couldn't cross the street during the green light. And I've really felt what it was like to be older and physically impaired and gain new respect for that. But that means that you should, you know, change your decision about when you cross the street. Um, don't, you know, cross after the light's been on for 30 seconds, but cross when the start crossing when the light, um, you know, goes on at the first instance. So I think the take home message is this is natural. This is part of our, um, our development. This is part of our aging. This is, this is all good our assessments of risk should change over time. Um, and that's something we should embrace. Now, you should not fear that I will attempt to exhaust the wealth of wisdom you have to offer us here about fear. But I have one last question, which is, could you just address the idea? I mean, so far we've been talking almost as though uh, fear is experienced with individuals in isolation from others, but we're not that way if we're in any kind of gregarious situation, if we are with others, if we're in groups, if we're social creatures. How does the presence of others of our own kind around us in, in, in social ways, how does that in any way influence or mitigate our fears? It can go both ways. And I think, you know, I think, uh, you know, COVID lockdowns and things like that that many of us have experienced has really shown us how important social relationships are. Um, there is safety in numbers in many cases, but also fear is something that can be spread contagiously. Um, so uh, social media these days really is a social accelerant of information. And I think we should be a little careful and, and mindful of uh, fearful messages can spread very, very quickly and uh, realize that, you know, go back and figure out, is this really truly something to be feared or is it not to be feared? If it's saying there's a hurricane coming your direction, maybe it should be feared. If it's saying, you know, hordes are crossing the borders to invade our homeland, maybe, you know, maybe not um, in, in many contexts. So fear, our, our other members, other humans and our, our social tendencies um, can both provide security from scary things, but also can accelerate our perceptions or amplify our perceptions of risk. Um, and if that leads to us overestimating risk, that probably isn't a good thing. So you've actually seen an amplification or an acceleration of fear in groups of animals. Yeah, you can clearly see that if an animal alarm calls and then other animals um, pick up alarm calling. If you've been around prey dogs or many ground squirrels, social ground squirrel species, uh, if a coyote walks into a, uh, a territory, a colony, um, one animal will start alarm calling, then other animals will start alarm calling contagiously and warn others. Um, I was trying to check for baby marmots the other day at this particular burrow, and there was a crow standing um, above uh, the burrow. And the crow saw me coming and gave an alarm call. And the marmot that was sitting by the burrow looked up and looked at me and run, ran into the burrow. But I wasn't at a position where I could see the burrow entrance to see if baby marmots were there. So um, different species are even communicating with each other. And, and wise individuals um, will seek information from others wherever it's available. Daniel Blumstein, I have never spent time with a marmot expert, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Marcus. This was a fun discussion. Daniel Blumstein with us, a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCLA. He is author of The Nature of Fear, Survival Lessons from the Wild. There are rational fears, and there are irrational fears, and then there are fears that are really just for fun. I'm talking about, oh, you know, roller coasters, scary movies, and fears of dying in outer space. Have you ever tried that? Fear. We're going to explore some improbable but scientifically sound options for calamity out in the dark and deadly domain beyond our comfy planet. That's when we return to Constant Wonder after this. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. If you should ever find yourself outside your spaceship, 
under some circumstances, there are cosmic forces that will lead to spaghettification of your body. And yes, it's gruesome. And yes, it's a real thing. Just Google it if you doubt me. But don't lose any sleep over this. It's very unlikely to affect you. But we can learn some pretty fun stuff by investigating ways to die in space. Paul Sutter is author of How to Die in Space, A Journey Through Dangerous Astrophysical Phenomena. He is host of the Ask a Spaceman podcast. We humans have a really hard time breathing nothing. If you are end out in space without a spacesuit, without protection, without an atmosphere, without air, you are going to lose consciousness in about 10 to 20 seconds. And a few minutes after that, you die. And it's just as simple and quick and straightforward as that in that if you're in a spaceship, you only have a few inches of metal between you and death in a matter of minutes. Well, is that death in a vacuum going to be something that happens uh, with any kind of air of violence? Or is it just as though my body were inert and floating around? There will be a good bit of violence as you try to get back to safety. But very, very quickly, your body recognizes the lack of oxygen, your brain recognizes the lack of oxygen, and in order to try to save yourself, your body shuts down your brain, shuts down your consciousness. So there's 10 to 20 seconds of you flailing around, and then you just go to sleep. But there's nothing that happens in the way of my body being distended or stretched or pulled apart or anything violent along right. those lines? Yeah, there are all these visions of uh, people going out into space and then blowing up in the vacuum. And, and yes, it's true that outside your body, there would be a vacuum. There would be zero air pressure. And so naturally, your parts, the liquids and fluids in your body would want to expand. You don't blow up because your skin is really, really good at keeping your insides inside. So you don't blow up, but you do swell a bit in a phenomenon called ebolism, which is different than an embolism, but equally deadly. Uh, an ebolism is when the fluids near the surface of your skin expand. So you do puff up. You do look like something like a grotesque version of the Michelin Man uh, in the, those last few minutes of your life. Now, this is not speculative. You're talking about what would really happen to my body in that environment. Right. Uh, so we haven't spaced people or animals deliberately to see what happens, but there have been accidents at high altitude where uh, there have been leaks in pressure suits, and we've been able to see what happens to people's uh, limbs, or and we know what happens to uh, lungs in the presence of a vacuum. In fact, you might think that you, to to hold on a little bit longer, you might want to take one big breath of of air, pull a bunch of air into your lungs, and then it might spare you another, you know, thirty or second, thirty or sixty seconds, however long you can hold your breath. Uh, but we know from physics and from experiments that if you try to hold an air full of air a lung full of air inside of you against a vacuum, that your throat is not strong enough to hold back that air. So if you try to hold in, the air will escape, and in the process, it will rip your throat out. So this is the exact same reason why scuba divers, when they go to deep, uh, when they dive deeply and experience high pressures, as they come up, they can't hold their breath because the expanding air will rupture their lungs and their throats. Does this come up in your book about the vacuum, uh, that, that chapter? Is, is, this, is this the way you lead out? Oh, yeah. This is, this is the warm-up. This is just getting started. <laughs> the, the pre-show. Well, yes. uh, is, is there good sense in trying to differentiate between death, say, within our solar system, this interplanetary zone, versus moving further out? Or is it just kind of like a journey? It's, a, it's you know, the shtick for, for taking a journey far, far from home. It is a shtick, but it's also a matter of scale. Uh, there's only so much energy available inside the solar system from our sun or from orbits. 
Uh, if you want a really exotic death, a real high-energy death, you have to go somewhere else. You have to go outside the solar system. You have to go outside the galaxy. You have to find some really rare, extremely energetic events if you want to go out in truly spectacular fashion. Well, it's pretty dangerous around here. We've got asteroids and comets. There's The sun is ejecting different kinds of, I don't know, flares and whatnot. I mean, it's it's not all that tame here in spite of the emptiness here, there, and the other place? No, uh, the solar system is not tame at all. There, there are constant collisions between comets and asteroids and planets. The sun is deeply disturbed. It is constantly roiling and boiling and sending off flares and coronal mass ejections. Uh, it's ugly right here, right off our doorstep. What is a coronal mass ejection? A uh, coronal mass ejection is when the sun vomits a chunk of its own material out into the solar system. It's a massive blob, bigger than a planet, highly energetic. Most of these blobs uh, just go out through empty space. Uh, sometimes they do hit the Earth, though. Oh, they really hit the Earth. Yeah, yes, uh, they, they'll hit. Yeah, yep. Um, have you seen that? Uh, there have been some medium-ish coronal mass ejections over the past few years. Uh, really, every other year or so, it depends on how active the sun is being. Uh, but every other year or so, there'll be a reasonably large storm to strike the Earth, and when it does. Um, we need to shut down orbiting satellites or the, their circuitry will get fried. Any astronauts out on the spacewalk need to come inside. Um, we can get very impressive aurora displays on the Earth. And then sometimes even power systems, power grids, and electronics on the surface of the Earth get disrupted. So this is not like lava shooting out. This is some other kind of energy? Yes, this is a, a blast of high-energy particles. Uh, it's a plasma. Well, uh, the only plasma I really have thought about lately is blood plasma. This, this, it's, <laughs> this is not liquid. No, this is this is a fourth state of matter. This is a high energy soup of nuclei and electrons all swimming around together. So, how would this high energy soup then take my life if I were out there exposed to it? So if you were exposed, uh, first there's the radiation. There's the uh, high-energy light that accompanies the coronal mass ejection. And we're talking X-rays, gamma rays, the, the real hard stuff. And a few X-rays here and there can help you see through your skin and tell if you have a broken bone. But a lot of X-rays will just you know, melt the flesh off of your bones. And the high-energy particles themselves is like, um, imagine a really nasty hailstorm, but the hail is traveling close to the speed of light. And we're protected by the atmospheric blanket around us, I'm guessing? Yes, exactly. We're protected by both our magnetic field and our very thick atmosphere. Yeah. Um, see, there's risk close enough to home to suit me just fine. I, I don't have to go far out of the solar system at all. Um, how long did it take you to think this up? I mean, do you, do you consult with other scientists and say, uh, how, how, how does death occur from a coronal mass ejection? Or, I mean, how do you, how do you figure that out? Actually, I started writing and researching this book about five years ago. I just got the idea of, Oh, there, there's a lot of ways to die in space. Like if we were to actually go see a supernova up close or if we were to see two stars collide up close, uh, if we were to visit a stellar nursery where stars are born up close, we would be fried. It would not be pleasant. It's actually more fun and enjoyable to see these things from afar, uh, from the comfort of our observatories. And it, that thought triggered this journey about five years ago, and I wrote a few chapters, but then put it down, and I wrote another book, my first uh, first published book, Your Place in the Universe. Uh, and then um, about a year ago, I came back to this topic and, and really wanted to finish the journey. 
Well, can you take us a little bit outside of our solar system? Uh, a little bit. That's an understatement. I, I don't know what a stellar nursery is. It sounds very docile, but I'm guessing it's a threat. Exactly. A stellar nursery is a cloud, a nebula of gas and dust that is actively forming stars where pieces of the nebula are pinching off, collapsing down and igniting nuclear fusion to kick off the whole star thing. And from a distance, we can see stellar nurseries. Uh, you can see some with uh, parabinoculars. You can see the Orion Nebula is a star-forming region. It is a stellar nursery. But, um, yeah, you can imagine with massive bodies of gas collapsing together enough to ignite nuclear fusion, it's not going to be a very pleasant place. But would I be safe in some kind of a spaceship? out there if it's just gas i'm just wondering if before it forms that star it would seem to me that the particles the little atoms the constituent parts of this gas cloud might be you know thin enough out there very not not dense i'm not going to really collide with it am i uh, not at first, but as the densities climb high enough to actually trigger the formation of a star, um, it's not going to be pretty. So you might be in a ship out on the ocean and you can handle a light drizzle and maybe a major uh, thunderstorm. But if a hurricane comes floating by, you may not be so lucky. Everybody I know of who thinks about a danger in space, the the, 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 the big one, the whopper, the thing that just seems just made for horror movies, is the black hole. And I think that's mm -hmm. because of the fact that it's like everything that is turns inside out and goes away and you can't see it and there's no trace of it and where did it go, but it's really there, but it's not there. Uh, how would you describe death by black hole? Uh, uh, black holes are definitely featured prominently in the book. They get a couple chapters devoted exclusively to them, and then they play major roles in some of the other chapters. And Death by Black Hole, it depends on how big the black hole is. If it's a smaller black hole, say a few times the mass of the sun, the extreme gravity outside the black hole will rip you to shreds before you even get close. It will stretch you out into a long, thin strand of particles uh, through something we call tidal forces, and then your particles will end up entering the black hole never to be seen again. But for a large black hole, the story is a little bit different. You can actually cross the boundary of a black hole, something called the event horizon, without getting torn apart. Once you cross the event horizon, though, you are locked off from the rest of the universe forever. You cannot escape a black hole. You cannot leave a black hole. It is a one-way trip. Once you enter, you do not leave. And you can survive the entry to a large black hole. Uh, eventually, the extreme gravitational forces will pull you apart and destroy you in a matter of seconds. Uh, but for those few seconds, you can enjoy the fact that you got inside of a black hole. <laughs> so in other words, this thing called the event horizon, that's just a euphemism for point of no return. Exactly. It's just the name we give to that invisible boundary in space. Would you dare to define for us this very technical term called spaghettification? It comes from <laughs> yes, spaghetti. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's when these uh, strong gravitational forces take any object, rip it to shreds, and pull it into a long, thin strand, not unlike a strand of spaghetti. And hence the actual scientific term for this process of spaghettification. Now, is it so that these forces pulling me further and further, once I've crossed the event horizon, that point of no return, and I'm doomed, I don't know how many years it would take me to get to the, the heart of the thing, but as I'm headed towards my death, is it true that these forces are strong enough to destroy atomic bonds, to pull atoms apart into little bitty pieces? Yes, the... The gravitational forces inside of a black hole are stronger than anything we know. In fact, that is the definition of a black hole, a place where gravity has overwhelmed 
every other force, where everything entering the event horizon of the black hole eventually reaches the center, a place of infinite gravity, of infinite density, a place we call this singularity, and anything you drop in there will eventually become totally ripped to shreds and compressed into this infinitely tiny point. You just said infinitely tiny. Um, I don't know that you or I have ever been able to wrap our heads around infinitely tiny. Have Have you? Right. No, I haven't. So uh, we get this language of black holes from Einstein's theory of general relativity. And we know that in general relativity, the center of a black hole is a place of infinite density. It is, in, it is an infinitely tiny point. We also know that that's not the end of the story. The presence of a singularity in the mathematics tells us that our theory is incomplete, that general relativity doesn't tell us everything that's going on in the center of a black hole. So what actually goes on in the center of a black hole, we honestly don't know. And if you were to go to try to find out, you wouldn't be able to tell us. It's a sealed thing. We'll, nobody will ever come out with information. We'll never know. Exactly. That's the end of science right there. If you'll never know, that's the end of science. Uh, you can know. You just can't tell anyone else. <laughs> well, here's something that maybe you could or could not tell somebody else. I, I don't know. Uh, maybe this is a spoiler and you can't tell anybody because it would be a spoiler. But wormholes, are they a thing? Uh, wormholes are indeed a theoretical construct. Again, we get this from Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh, but as far as we can tell, we've come up with a lot of very clever ways to try to construct wormholes. And every time we try to construct a wormhole, we find that it's actually inherently unstable, that if you were to build one and try to actually travel down it, it would instantly collapse. So. We're not exactly sure what's going on. We're not exactly sure why uh, Mother Nature seems to despise wormholes so much. And yet every time we try to make a wormhole, it, it doesn't work out. So we feel like there is more to be learned here. We feel like there is more physics to uncover, something more deeper and fundamental about the universe. Either wormholes are allowed, and we just haven't figured out how or why, or they really are allowed, but we haven't really figured out how or why. So no matter what, wormholes, the topic of wormholes points us in the direction of, of something new and interesting in the universe. Paul Sutter, author of How to Die in Space, A Journey Through Dangerous Astrophysical Phenomena. He is the host of the Ask a Spaceman podcast. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.